Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Throwback Bookstack. I am one of your hosts, Kelly. I'm Emily. And if you haven't listened to our podcast before, we are a show where we read a book that we read when we were kids, that we loved when we were kids, and we look at it again through the lens of now being in our 30s. And we judge the book, we judge ourselves, we judge our lives. We do a lot of judging on this show. And this week, we are reading Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass. Uh, It was published in 1995, and if you are anywhere other than the United States, you are probably more familiar with it under the name Northern Lights. Because America likes to rename things for a lot of ridiculous reasons, here it is called The Golden Compass. Um, It was the first of his his Dark Materials trilogy, uh, which was then followed with The Subtle Knife and The Amber Spyglass. And this one, so it came out in 1995, and it did really well. It's a really well-known book. It got a lot of acclaim. It ended up being made into a movie later on, a very, very, very terrible movie. Please do not see this movie. It is a very bad movie. The good news, however, for its future life is actually being made into a um, series by the BBC, which is going to have Lin-Manuel Miranda in it, and I am very excited to see it redone and hopefully done well. So this was a book that we both read when we were kids. Is that correct? Well, no. <laughs> okay. What? I thought you'd read this one. <laughs> I have. Disclaimer. I did not read it as a child, though. I read it when I was like, maybe like 21. Oh, so inner youth. Yeah. E- yeah. Well, you, you talk about your history with the book first. Okay. I read this book probably in 1996. Um, I read it pretty early on during its publication life. I originally picked this up just, you know, it was something being promoted on the shelves really heavily as a new release. Uh, I picked it up and I just was immediately in love. I mean, most of my life I'd read a lot of sci-fi, I'd read a lot of fantasy, but most of it was stuff that had been given to me by my, my parents, been recommended to me by friends. This was kind of the first real major, like, book series that felt adult, that felt exciting, that felt like a big, long adventure that was something I really sought out for myself, really fell in love with, really got engaged with. Um, I just remember waiting endlessly for the sequel to come out. And I just fell so hard in love with this book. And it was a really sort of major factor for me in that period of my life in junior high. And I really, really, really loved it. Emily's face tells me she has a different story. I'm going to tell you a story. Tell me a story. I love stories. And here are... Here's... Probably the nicest thing I will say about this book the entire episode is that this book did change my life in a very positive way. Okay. Like, it really did. When I was living in New York, I had not lived there for very long. Um, I knew a couple people, but, like, hadn't really made any new friends other than people I knew from college who also lived there. And one afternoon, I went to my favorite coffee shop. Uh, well, first I went to the library, and I got this book because I had, like, kind of heard of it. And this was like, I mean, years, like all three of them were out at that point. Uh, and the movie had already come out years ago. Like, but like I'd heard of it. It was like being like recommended on like the library recommendation shelf or something. And I was like, I don't know, I'll try it. It was like a Tuesday. I was bored, like day off, nothing to do. So I got it and I went to the fa- my favorite coffee shop, which had just recently, this was like before I'd ever heard the words craft beer so like was it there was, a time? Yeah. So this was like a coffee shop that would become kind of like pop up everywhere where it was like it does really fancy coffee and it only made amazing grilled cheeses and then it sold like fancy craft beers. That's all but the things I love. It was amazing and I love this place. But this was when it was like 
I had never seen a place like this before, mm-hmm. and it was one of the only ones in the neighborhood at the time, and they had just gotten their license to start selling beer. So I like went and I drank a coffee, and then when it started to get darker, I switched over to beer, and I was reading this book at the bar, and I always sit at bars, and this like girl around my age came and sat down and was also like talking to the bartender and sitting there, and she noticed the book, and she started talking to me about it, and we ended up, A, becoming friends, and like B, because she knew everyone who worked there, I also became friends with everyone at this bar, and it became like a very important place in my life, as did everyone who worked there become very important to me. But it also, I was like, yeah, it's a little weird that I'm reading like a YA book. I was kind of like nervous and embarrassed about it. And she was the one who was all like, what are you talking about? That's awesome. There's all sorts of people who reread these books. And like, really opened me up to the world of not, like, I've always loved reading, obviously. But, like, it was at that point in my, like, beginning of my adult life when I was really self-conscious about, like, you have to be seen with the right books or else people will judge you. Now I don't care at all. I mean, despite the fact that I did hide The Witch of Luckmore Pond from my coworkers because they nosy. And it's a really embarrassing cover when you're just, like, trying to wander through without having people stop and be like, what is that you're reading? <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, I read all sorts of things now. I read adult books. I read kids' books. I read YA. I read romance. Like, whatever. So. So you're saying this book made you a better person. I, I wouldn't go that far, but I would say it did, it did really influence my life. Like, it had a big impact on it. See? That does not have to do with the contents inside the book, though. (laughs) I love this book. (laughs) Do you want to give a summary of what happens in this book? Absolutely. So uh, this is the story of Lyra, who is a 12-year-old girl who lives in a world that is a parallel universe to ours. It's similar to our world, but it's very different. It's a world that is ruled by a sort of large church that is basically in control of kind of the equivalent of England there. It is a world where there's a major difference between ours and theirs. Um, In their world, everyone has their own basically animal companion. It is an animal that is psychically tied to you. It's a sentient being. And when you're a kid, it changes forms constantly. Um, It's able to change shape. And then at some point when you hit puberty, it settles into a final form that is supposedly a reflection of your soul. So Lyra and her Damon Pantalaemon, basically, they think they're orphans. Um, She does have an uncle, Asriel, who had left her at Oxford College. And she basically lives at Oxford, roams around freely. The master's there, teach her when they can. Um, But she's really spent her childhood playing with the local kitchen boys, playing with the Egyptians on the river, playing sort of with the different kids nearby. But one day, she is basically trying to sneak into a room she's never been into, where only the masters are allowed. And she, uh, she sees that they're about to poison her uncle, Lord Asriel, who's come to visit. She warns him when he gets there and... She then basically ends up spying for the evening on the meeting with the masters for her uncle. And she learns about all sorts of concepts like something called dust and these giant bears that live up north and these things that are happening at the Northern Lights. And it starts her on an adventure where um, her uncle has gotten funding for an expedition that he's going on. And she's sort of learned about all these kind of new concepts that are about to play out in a larger way in her story. She is going again about her life playing with the nearby kids, but something is happening where kids are being kidnapped. No one knows what's happening to them. Something called the Gobblers is taking them away and they're not returning. Um, Shortly after, finds one of her friends, uh, Roger the Kitchen Boy, ends up kidnapped by these Gobblers. But at the same time, a woman has come to town, Mrs. Coulter. 
And Mrs. Coulter is a woman unlike any that Lyra has ever met. She is this very fancy but adventurous woman. She's well-learned, but she's also very intimidating to everyone. Um, And in the end, she actually, uh, Lyra ends up going with Mrs. Coulter to be her personal assistant. Uh, The masters decide that she would be best going there. They don't want to send her, but there seems to be a need to. But when she goes, they give her an alethometer, which is basically the titular golden compass. And what it is, is a compass, as I said, (laughs) and it has a bunch of pictures on it. And it has three small hands and then one long needle. You can point the short hands at the different pictures, and each picture has layers and layers and layers of 30 to 1,000 meetings. And you basically ask it a question by pointing the different hands at the different pictures, and then sort of gazing off into space and concentrating but not concentrating. And the long hand hits different pictures and tells you the answer to your question. She doesn't know how to read it at first. She learns along the way, but she's sent off with this, and she goes with Mrs. Coulter. She learns sort of a lot about being more refined a little bit about dealing with people a little bit about camouflaging herself in a higher society when they go to London together. But she then finds out that Mrs. Coulter is in fact involved with the kidnapping of the children. The Gobblers is actually a shortened term for the ablation board that she has begun, which is doing some sort of experiments on children. And everyone seems to think that since Lyra is the assistant, she knows about it. So she gets a little too much information, knows that she has to run away. Um, So she runs away. So she basically then ends up fleeing onto the boats of the Egyptians, who are these sort of canal traveling nomads. And she knew them from back at Oxford. They welcome her onto the boat and they find out that she's being hunted down by Mrs. Coulter. They have a big meeting of all the Egyptians because their kids are mostly the ones being stolen and decide they're going to go up and get their kids back. Um, They form an expedition to the Arctic. They decide to bring Lyra with her alethiometer because she's able to sort of help answer questions with it. Uh, When they get up there, they decide to also um, have an armored bear named Eirik Berninson and their party. He was a bear who had lost his armor. And bears don't have uh, daemons. They have armor that basically holds their soul. And he has lost his armor to the people in town. He really sits around drinking and is angry and they decide to help him get his armor back. And so in exchange, he joins their party. They also pick up Lee Scoresby, who is, he's an aeronautics pilot. He has a hot air balloon that he flies and it's pretty rad. So they continue towards Bolvajar, which is where the gobblers have their research station, where they're doing experiments on kids. Lyra makes a brief detour. She goes to a village where she finds one of the kids who has been experimented on. She finds out what they're doing. They have a way of surgically cutting the children from their daemons. And what that does is wreck you. You're basically cutting someone off from their soul. And so they become these sort of confused ghost-like children that sort of wander and then end up dying. It's, it's, there's not a way to survive very easily with your daemon no longer attached to you. So she finds one of the children who has been separated from his daemon. She then sort of brings him back, but he does die. And they realize that this is what's happening to their kids as they're being experimented on and having their daemons cut from them. So she ends up being kidnapped in in a research center, which is where the kids are being experimented on. Um, She ends up in there for a little while. And basically she finds out more about how they are experimenting on kids and what they're doing to them. And she realizes that she needs to get out because she finds out Mrs. Coulter is coming within two days and that Mrs. Coulter will definitely know who she is. She basically lies and claims that she's just a girl. She doesn't know anything. And she gets put in with all the other kids being experimented on. And she runs in again to Roger, her best friend from the kitchens. And so she starts to hatch a plan where there's a there's a fire drill that happens. And when she sees how 
unorganized things are, she realizes that's their best chance to escape. So she almost ends up having her daemon cut from her. When Mrs. Coulter arrives, sees it her, it's her, she gives this whole sob story about how she got kidnapped in London and lost and captured and then brought here. And so Mrs. Coulter brings her back in uh, to the fold as her assistant and gives her a room. And Lyra takes this chance to find a way to escape because Mrs. Coulter knows about the alethometer and wants it from her. Um, she sets off the alarm. She helps all the kids escape. They all get saved by uh, Eric and their team. And she and Roger end up in the balloon with the Scoresby. Lyra is then attacked, though, however, and uh, she is kidnapped by bounty hunters who then take her to the bears. She is now in the kingdom of the bears. Um, the bears are great. They are armored bears, except the bear here is Eilfer, and he is the new king. He took over, apparently, from Iorek, the bear that they got to join them. And he did it through trickery. He ended up tricking his way into the throne. And he doesn't want to be a bear. He wants to be a person. He's having them build this castle for him, which is not something bears live in. He's valuing gold, which is traditionally bears value steel and iron. And he uh, wants a daemon more than anything. So Lyra finds out that her father, Lord Asriel, is being held there. And she wants to help him escape. And she also wants to help save herself. So she convinces Iofer that she is Iorik's daemon and that there was experiments happening that included giving bears daemons. So she convinces him that she is a daemon and that she doesn't want to be Iorik's daemon. She wants to be Iofer's daemon. She wants to be the daemon for the strongest bear of them all. And so she convinces him that he needs to challenge and in one-on-one uh, one -on -one combat kill Iorik so that she can then be to have his strength transferred over and that she'll become Iofer's daemon if this occurs. Iorek arrives, he is trying to, desperately to get to Lyra to save her, and he also has Roger with... So Iorek kills Iofer and takes his rightful place as king in their one-on-one -on -one combat, and basically the bears are returning to their previous state. Lyra then rescues her uncle. Along the way, found out that he's not actually her uncle. In fact, he is her father, and her mother is Mrs. Coulter. So it's kind of a weird dynamic, but she rescues him. She's like, you should have told me you were my father. He kind of brushes things off. She claims that she's brought the alethometer for him all this time. The masters wanted him to have it. He doesn't care about it. But he is excited about something else she's brought. He's excited that she brought Roger. Um, so she rescues her father. She, But she's, he's excited about Roger, and she finds out why. Basically, all throughout this book, there is a long theme of religion and the role the church plays over it. And this, there's this idea of dust are these other kind of elementary particles. There's something like the proton or the electron, but they're different. And it's something that exists over all adults, and it doesn't exist as much over kids, but it, when their daemon settles, it sort of settles on them. And there's this weird thought among the church that it is original sin itself. And there's this desire to destroy it. And that's a lot of the driving factor of a lot of these forces. Mrs. Coulter wants to find a way to destroy it. She works for the church. Lord Asriel finds something else out because when he looked at the Northern Lights, he didn't just see the Northern Lights. There is a city in the Northern Lights. He wants to go there. He wants to build a bridge, but it involves a large amount of energy. And one way they found that generates a large amount of energy is when you split a child from their daemon, there's a huge burst of energy that occurs. And so when she shows up to his door, he's terrified to see her, but she has Roger with her. And she doesn't realize she's betrayed Roger by bringing him there. In the middle of the night when they're asleep, he takes Roger out and he separates him from his daemon and she goes to try and save him, but fails. And Roger dies, but the burst of energy ends up 
creating an entryway to this other world through the Northern Lights, this parallel dimension, which is our world. She realizes that she needs to cross over there. He, Lord Azrael thinks dust is evil. He thinks he can go to this other world and destroy the source of dust. She thinks if all of these wicked, evil, terrible people think dust is bad, it's probably actually good. So she wants to cross the bridge, go to this other world, and find the source of dust to help save it from him. And that is the end of the book. It ends with her adventuring into another world. If you watch the terrible movie, that's not where it ends. It ends three chapters earlier on a positive note, which is terrible. I hate the movie a lot. Never seen it. Do not see the movie. To summarize this book and my feelings on it. First off, I, I didn't like it when I first read it, but I had so much positive memories of it. Because of, as I said, how much reading the book, the act of doing it, contributed to my life. This read through, I liked it a lot less than I did the first time. And I think my general problem with, like, I get why people like it because the concept of, like, what if there's billions of universes out there and some of them are kind of like ours but have this weird quirk or this different thing. Then we watch sliders. But that's something I feel like everyone can relate to. Like, everyone's thought those things and stuff. Like, it's a very common story. The problem was, I am not on board with this universe. <laughs> I think, overall, that's my problem with the story. What's your problem with this universe? I, well, I don't... Where to start? First off, I do not care for the concept of daemons. <gasps> I know, you and your weird animal book love. I don't like them. I don't, I, d I don't, I don't like it. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of holes in their lore. And like, I know this is a story for kids and not everything has to be filled out. But like, I had so many questions that were unanswered, like, what about re real animals? Like, if you, for example, have a daemon that's a moth. Does that not ever get, like, eaten by a bird or something? Or, like, accidentally crushed? Do they smell? What about pets? <laughs> like, do people have pets? Do they get along with daemons? Are the pets allowed to touch them? Like, apparently it causes pain if other people touch yours, and that's never used as a weapon, really? And it is used as a weapon. weapon. Not that off. Like, it's once, and it felt like it was more of an accident in well the entire book. I know, it's when the monkey very specifically tries to hurt Lyra's daemon. No, that's the other daemons doing it. I'm talking yeah. about, like, a human. Oh, yeah. Well, they also do that later on, where one of the scientists is touching her daemon. Right, and that's when it causes her pain. But that's... But it's such a huge taboo in the world. That's why. It's one I'm... of those, like, it's like why we don't go just randomly nuking people. Like, right, there are certain but... taboos, and this is the biggest taboo that world has. But that's such a, like, I mean, this is a world where there's fighting and war and stuff, and that's such a, like, so go after their daemons. Like, you're rendering them useless. That's obviously what people would do, and I feel like that's really looked over. Uh... I feel like you don't know how taboos work. I feel like you're putting too much faith in people having taboos. It felt like, I think one of my friends, when I was talking about this book in general, described them as like, oh, the, the weird opposite gender outside soul thing. And I was like, yes, exactly. Like, I'm not into it. Like, I don't like this whole, like, your soul is this thing. The out opposite gender thing kind of was like, I don't... I don't, it was a weird, like, I felt like it was trying to make a point, but it was a little clumsy about it. Do daemons smell? Why they're, is that what you're concerned with? This I, is what I don't just get. Just kept thinking about that, because they're animals, you know? Like, anyway, there's some weird, creepy-ish things in there. Well, also, Cedar apparently puts them to sleep. Yeah. I was like, that's dumb. 
detail. I didn't care for it. There was a couple of, like, parts that I thought were kind of, like, creepy and weird. So they're opposite genders. And there was one part where when Lyra first goes to live with Mrs. Coulter, she's getting a bath and Pan's just, like, sitting there next to her, like, watching. And they both kind of, like, Mrs. Coulter and her Damon, like, make a point to kind of, like, look at him until he, like, looks away so that he's not seeing her naked in the bath. That's weird. That was weird, right? I was like, so they're your soul, but they, if they look at a little kid in the bath, that's creepy. Like, it doesn't make any... The other thing I didn't, the one problem I also really had with daemons was, like, the point they make that most servants have dog daemons. Like, the fact that your your soul says that your job is who you are is wild to me. Yeah, and then also at the end, when it was, like, Lord Azriel and Mrs. Coulter meet up again, and they're, like, making out, basically, and she's, like, swooning and stuff, and they're, like, daemons were too, and I was just like, I don't like this. Like, I just didn't care for it. Why do I have to read this description of, like, this cat tenderly holding a monkey? Like, uh. <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't on board. I don't know, this... This whole book had a, it felt like a slog to me because it, it had so much like descriptions of things and people giving long monologues about the rules of the universe. I love that. Yeah, I did not. (laughs) I was not into that. So that was kind of my general problem. Also, going back kind of to the weird, I know the like whole, there's like a sort of theme of gender dynamics and stuff through this whole book with like the opposite gender is supposed to be your daemon assuming that everyone just has the gender they are born with in this world well they make a point at some point that someone like there are occasionally people that have same gender daemons okay i think i missed that are you sure it's in this one yes okay and then there's like the weird thing about like there's like witches but you have to be born a witch and you're a female if you're a witch and like I don't know, there was weird things, and there's also, like, weird sexist things in this book that are kind of just, like, casually thrown in. Like, slight ones, but just, like, weird how they're kind of, like, looked down on female scholars and at one point are described as kind of, like, people think of them almost as, like, animals dressing up to put on a play. It is a very pointedly sexist world, like, and I think you can kind of see it in the construction of the world, and it does kind of make sense when you see it's a world that's been so heavily based on religious hierarchy, which traditionally has gender issues. Also, you read a lot of historical fiction, so what the fuck are you even doing being like, this book is sexist? Have you even seen the books that you have me read? Yeah, but... This is a fantasy world. It's fantasy historical fiction. It can be anything. It doesn't have to be sexist. It could be a world where you already have other things. You have a church and a thing. Like, why do you also have to have a long extended plot line about how the leader of this expedition doesn't want to take any women on it with him, even if they were just there to look after the children, as women folk do? Yeah, okay. The sexism was a thing, but I also feel like it made sense within the context of this world. Because this world is portrayed as superstitious and kind of like a lot of it's very, and it's very dogmatic in a lot of ways. And I think that if it wasn't sexist, I'm not sure how the rest of it being super dogmatic would fit in. Right, which I guess is kind of my point, is that like, I kind of felt this universe was a bummer. It was like, you could, you know, you're supposed to have this whole epic, like, fantasy that's like, you know, in some ways, classic young child who gets swept up in this thing and discovers they have, like, powers in a, in a way. You know, she's the only one who can read this thing. But 
the, I felt like the universe, I was like, I don't like this universe. Like, I don't want to be there. Like, the only selling point really is these daemon things. And I was like, nah, I'm okay without having a weird animal outside soul that's always around me and, like, causes me physical pain if they're ever too far away. I don't need that. See, I had the opposite reaction as you. When I was a kid, I was a lonely kid. You tell me you can have an animal companion that you're psychically attached to that is your automatic best friend for your entire life. I am fucking in on that. I want a cute fuzzy animal that is my best friend so we can just ignore all people and live a happy life together as BFFs. I loved the concept of daemons as a kid. It was my favorite thing. It's why I understood why a lot of other kids were into it. Like, I definitely had friends where we would sit and talk about our favorite TV shows and what character would have what daemon. And I will totally absolutely go through every book we have on this podcast and go over what the final form of daemons would be for everyone, just to make you miserable. Love! Our friendship is love. Yeah. (laughs) This podcast will bring us together and tear us apart. (laughs) Um, But also, I found it... So I think part of it is I was a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And I feel like in a lot of ways this book ties into that. It's a really, really rich world where they're not interested in filling in a lot of the details on it because it's so lived in. Like it's a world with a huge amount of mythology. And it was really exciting for me reading as an adult because there were so many things I didn't pick up on as a kid, especially all the church hierarchy stuff and all of the sort of, so this book is based on Paradise Lost as one of the influences for it. Also a response, sort of like some of it's a bit of a response by Philip Pullman to C.S. Lewis and the problems he has with the Narnia Chronicles. So for me, that resonates so heavily. And it was something that just as an adult, I'm even more excited by the world because there's so much more about the politics. Like I didn't understand or really pick up on the level of conflict the masters have and that they love Lyra. They don't want to send her out because they know there's something that she's destined for something terrible and they know some of this prophecy around her and they know some of what she's destined for and they know it's going to be terrible. And I never really saw how much conflict they had when I was a kid. I never saw a lot of the political aspects and like some of the whole, like the science is weird. The science isn't real. The science is awkward, but I feel like I appreciated a lot more of the world building as an adult. But like as a kid, like I love Lord of the Rings. If you give me a long drawn out rich world that has a bit of a like, academic style narrative that's my favorite thing so yeah as a kid I just I loved this world so much in that you know it wasn't because it was a perfect world I wanted to live in but because it was a complex world that was dangerous and strange in a way that was different from our world and daemons are also the best as an adult Daemons are still the best. I stand by that. Although, yes, there are a lot more weird, problematic aspects I didn't notice. Because, yeah, the whole, like, servants, daemons always end up being dogs was just, like, can't get on board with some of, like, the weird, like, class-based stuff in the book is weird. There's a lot of weird gender stuff. And I get it in the sense of, this is a world that's supposed to be oppressive. This is a world that's supposed to be dogmatic. And you, it's, you know, a lot, like, there's a reason this book gets a lot of pushback from religious institutions and is often face challenge of that is it's considered by a lot of people to be an indictment against church an indictment against religion like it's it's a book with so much going on and I love Lyra I love that a big theme in this book is everyone knows certain things that are going to happen to her but they can't tell her because she has to go in this not knowing there is something about her not knowing that's the only way she'll come to basically save everyone 
which is something that would normally annoy me. I normally hate them keeping information, but the fact that everyone is like super bummed about it and the fact that she's so fearless in the face of everything that she is forced to kind of learn things on her own and figure things out on her own. Like, I love Lyra so much. And just that she's just, she's spunky and she's straightforward and she just sort of take things on her own. And I love her and I love this book and I love that she befriends a bear and everything is great. Yeah, I was not on board with the bear either. I thought he was boring. I also, like, Lyra was like, I have no strong feelings about Lyra. Um, The bear just kind of like, it went from like zero to 60 too fast for me. Like, there was a part where she was just, like, being like, I love him. I love him. I love him more than my dad and all this stuff. And it was like, what did he do? Like, he didn't grow on me like he did for her. He was there for her and kept rescuing her and was, like, unlike her father. I get that, but just, like, I don't, like, something about how this character was written, it did not charm me. Like, I wasn't like, yeah, you should, like, I felt like I didn't know him. Like, I was Mm -hmm. just like, all these... Like, I rolled my eyes and nodded when you said this reminded you of Lord of the Rings, because I agree, because I was just like, yeah, it's a lot of, like, writing that just goes on forever. (laughs) It goes on forever, so you get to live in it forever. I love it. I'm looking through my notes right now on my Kindle, where you can just see, like, the notes you've written just one after another, and it's like, this other world sucks. There's just so much explaining. I hate these rules. I think I just hate daemons? What the fuck is this description? This is too long of a paragraph. (laughs) They all talk so much in this book. Like, my notes just continue on like this. And I was just like, I wasn't charmed by any of this. Which I get, if you were, then yeah, it's your jam. But I just think if you're not, there wasn't, like I said, like, even though I guess he was in the book a lot and he does a lot of things, I never really felt like I connected with Ior... Ioric, the bear, the fact that she did so much, like, left me feeling even doubly cold then, because I was like, well, I don't get it. I don't get where this is coming from. Like, it was weird. And yeah, I just feel like, for me also, a lot of it moved so slow because of that. Like, Mm -hmm. there's one note I have where I'm complaining, because the whole point of this part is, like, she realizes there's something sketchy going on at this village because of her symbol reader thing. And so she wants to go over there and check it out. And it's like four pages after we already know this. It is then four pages just of her explaining this again to the other people, even though we already know it. Then asking permission to do it. Then them like going over it and deciding and ultimately giving her permission and then she leaves. And it's like, I feel like this could have been like a paragraph. Did I have to be there in real time for all this to happen? Yes. Ugh. Yes, you did. You gotta build that anticipation. You gotta see how the politics work. Um, I also feel that it didn't work for me with, like, the ultimate, like, so much being put on, like, how disturbing it is. But, like, I could maybe go for the empathy thing of if this is supposed to be your soul, Damon's, and they're cutting it off from you and stuff, that that is shocking and, like, they're sad and they're kind of lost and, you know, most of them just, like, die from the shock of it and stuff. I could go for that from a point of view of, like, empathy, but they also present it in the books as, like, they're so disgusted and, like, they can't even speak the words and, like, they throw up when they see it and stuff. It's trying to, I guess, give you a sense of what this is like for them, but instead it comes off as being, like, we should also have those feelings, and I didn't. I was always just like, yeah, but, I mean, I don't have one, 
So I don't really get how this is so disgusting for you. Like, I had those feelings. Ugh. I mean, they spend the whole book really humanizing the the daemons as other characters. I mean, they're sentient. They are they are their own sentient individuals. You do see tearing out souls as kind of a body horror thing that happens in sci-fi and fantasy. And I think this was a way of achieving that in a way that is a lot more visceral and actually feels like it has stakes because you've met their souls and their souls are adorable and fuzzy. Why don't you love animals? I like animals just fine, but I'm not, I just wasn't as into it as, I mean, I don't hate animals. I just don't care as much, I think, like. Like, I didn't feel that, like, they were characters, I mean, mostly just Pan, though. Like, I, love I don't Pan. know. He was okay. I guess I liked him as much as I liked Lyra, so. Like, it definitely is a much more, I think, dryly written book than a lot of the ones, especially a lot of the ones I know that you like, are ones that really have, like, a very distinct tone, like, a very distinct voice, and that the characters have a very distinct voice. And this is really written as sort of a, gra- a much more of a grand epic style, Lord of the Rings style book. And that's my jam. It's a very good jam. I love it so. There's also a plot point about bears not being able to be tricked. But bears are tricked all the time. And his example of not being able to be tricked is like, I bet you can't hit me with the stick because I'll always see it coming and dodge. And she's like, oh yeah, you're right. But they make the point that the bears get tricked when they start acting like humans. Humans can be tricked. Bears, when they are bears, can't be tricked. I just... Bears trying to be humans can be tricked. having good body language reading skills and reflexes does not prove to me that they cannot be tricked. Man, that really, I don't know why, but that got under my skin. I have a whole bunch of sarcastic notes about the bears being like, oh, but bears can't be tricked, right? But then it leads into, you know, him finding out that she had actually tricked the king and him realizing that he can in fact trick the king and then he tricks the king during the fight. Like it's a whole, it, it leads to something. Every time they said something about bears not being tricked, I just assumed Yogi Bear was saying it. <laughs> and like, that dumb Yogi Bear voice. I'm sad. <sighs> I was not down with the world of this book. I'm sorry, and I know a lot of people love it, and that's why, like, the first time I read it, I remember being like, I didn't love it, but, like, it was kind of forgettable. Like, I never reread it because I knew I was like, mm, I remember not liking it that much, but it was fine, just not for me. And that is a lesson learned of, like, if things are not for you, do not reread them because they will start to annoy you more. <laughs> I have bad news. There's probably more things on my list you're not going to like. Oh, God. There was just so much talking. The weird thing was, was that they give these, like, long monologues, but the dialogue when there's, like, two of them trying to talk was, like, really bad in the opposite direction. It felt like almost like a comic book or something where the lights go out and you see the little dialogue boxes where everyone, like, starts to talk and gets cut off or, like, doesn't finish their sentence where it's like, did you see? No, it was over. I was go. That's how all the conversations sounded to me when there was two people talking, but when it was just, like, one person monologuing for a really long time about something, I was like, isn't there any in between? <laughs> Can't you guys either just say, like, one complete sentence? I don't relate to this at all. Oh, God, I didn't like it. <laughs> um, which I think was my thing. I have a quote somewhere. Oh, one other thing I like about the narrative is... Early on, it really does have kind of a storybook point. There's a very strong narrator outside of the text where there's someone who will often mention things Lyra will do or mention things she's not seeing and very deliberately sort of point things out in a sort of storyteller point of view. Early on, when they're first talking about children disappearing, there's a, the narrator really gets into describing 
you know, this is the limehouse and here is the child who's going to disappear. And he describes the child and really sort of gives this outward view where you're really looking at it from a distance. And I think it works really well with the story because there's so many points where Lyra's having this information held from her that the narrator does a really great job filling in those blanks and sort of setting up, it sets the reader in the position of all of the people that are keeping information from Lyra. We're being provided with information we're basically in a position where we can't tell her. And I feel like we're really being set up in collusion with a lot of the other characters in a way that I really thought was interesting. And it really, especially early on, felt like a very sort of storyteller tradition kind of narrative in a way that I found enjoyable, unlike you in your face right now. I mean, I guess I get that it follows like a very traditional, it's a myth or a fairy tale or whatever. I just, I have a note in here at one point that says, did Tony Kushner write this? <laughs> Because I may have recently seen a Tony Kushner play, and my biggest problem with it was that I was like, I get that people love him because they love his long descriptive monologues, Mm -hmm. but I think there's too many of them, and it takes away the power of them. Instead of having, like, a couple beautiful ones that prove a point, there's, like, just one about every last thing, and it makes all of the characters kind of sound the same. If you jumbled up their monologues and put them out of order, I wouldn't be able to tell who was saying what. Characters don't have a distinct point of view, almost. Or definitely don't have a distinct voice. And that's how I felt about this. I was like, there's like some writing that it's maybe not my jam, but I can get that some people like it or love the way it's written and think it's beautiful or whatever. But then there's just so much of it And, like, everyone sounded the same, you know? Like, the Texan describing his life sounded to me exactly the same as, like, the priest or the witch or the Egyptian traitor. They all sound exactly the same. (laughs) That was my feelings. (laughs) Well, my response to that is, I'm gonna read a quote. And that quote is going to be a long monologue. The sight filled the northern sky. The immensity of it was scarcely conceivable. As if from heaven itself, great curtains of delicate light hung and trembled, pale green and rose pink, and as transparent as the most fragile fabric. And at the bottom edge, a profound and fiery crimson like the fires of hell, they swung and shimmered loosely with more grace than the most skillful dancer. Lyra thought she could even hear them, a vast, distant, whispering swish. In the evanescent delicacy, she felt something as profound as she'd felt close to the bear. She was moved by it. It was so beautiful it was almost holy. She felt tears prick in her eyes, and the tears splintered the light even further into prismatic rainbows. It wasn't long before she found herself entering the same kind of trance as when she consulted the alethometer. Perhaps, she thought calmly, whatever moves the alethometer's needle is making the aurora glow, too. It might even be dust itself. She thought that without noticing that she thought it, and soon forgot it, and only remembered much later. And as she gazed, the image of the city seemed to form itself behind the veils and streams of translucent color. Towers and domes, honey-colored temples and colonnades, broad boulevards and sunlit parkland. Looking at it gave her a sense of vertigo, as if she were not up but down, and across a gulf so wide that nothing could ever pass over it. It was a whole universe away. But something was moving across it, and as she tried to focus her eyes on the movement, she felt faint and dizzy because the little thing moving wasn't part of the aurora or the other universe behind it. It was in the sky over the roofs of the town. When she could see it clearly, she had come fully awake and the sky city was gone. 
She looks up in the aurora borealis and it's beautiful and it's just enchanting poetic language and it's so good and it's just like she's enveloped in the feeling and it's the connection of the dust and the alethiometer and then she can see the city and it's so good. Yeah, I actually had part of that quote highlighted too. Not the whole thing because uh-huh. that's ridiculously long and like seven pages. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I had at least the part where it's like perhaps she thought calmly whatever is moving the Alethea's meter meter blah blah blah. Thought that without noticing that she thought it and she soon forgot it and only remembered it much later. But my note on that said, I feel like this writing is clumsy. I don't like it. (laughs) So I just think we are indifferent. I don't think there's an agreement to be reached here. Your soul is dead. Because I just don't care for it. (sighs) It is not my taste. Don't understand you. I know. All right, what's your quote? I'm trying to... Fight me. I know, I gotta Quote fight. Hold on, hold on. We battle. I'll get another quote if you make me. No, if you don't find no, it. No, <laughs> Oh, what's that? Am I finding another long monologue? Oh, um, oh, oh. There's just so many things I've wrote about not liking things. <laughs> I could read a part of Paradise Lost while you're looking. No, I'm good. I don't know. I can't, I can't find the quote I was thinking of, but here's like one example of just them talking where it's like, to me, this was a paragraph that made me like roll my eyes. They all talk like this and it's too much. I wrote a note with this. This book to me feels like sitting in a super long meeting at work (laughs) where like people are saying things and you're like i feel like you could hurry this up and say less and still convey your point (laughs) john foss spoke lyra child farter coram has told me about your reading of the instrument and i'm sorry to say that poor jacob has just died i think we're going to have to take you with us after all against my inclinations i'm troubled in my mind about it but there doesn't seem to be any alternative as soon as Jacob's buried, according to our custom, we'll take our way. You understand me, Lila. You're coming too, but it ain't an occasion for joy or jubilation. There's trouble and danger ahead for all of us. And then it keeps going. There's two more paragraphs of him talking after that. But that's what I mean, is that, like, I feel like he was just repeating himself here. No, he was giving information. It was all distinct information. Ugh, God. See, and I mean, that's just what it is, I think. If that paragraph, if you thought... That was a lovely and interesting way of writing, and I would enjoy reading more of that. Then this is the book for you. But if you, like me, rolled your eyes at that and thought, get to the point, man, then this is not the book for you. I love you, Golden Compass. Don't listen to her. She's mean. You're such a good book. Even if you had a terrible movie. I really hated that movie. I've never seen it. And let me say, I am not going to. There was a lot of me screaming. And then when the, the movie just ends, like the movie ends super abruptly and everyone was just like, wait, what's happening? You could tell who had read the book in the audience because we're all basically screaming because they decided to cut off the last three chapters to put in the next movie, partly because it was a really long movie, but also because they wanted to end on an uplifting note. And you can't when a kid gets murdered in the last chapter. Sure. I mean, he he knows how to, like, the last sentence of this book is a, is a good cliffhanger sentence. If you're into cliffhangers. I'm trying really hard not to be like, this book is terrible, because I understand that it was more just like, I personally did not like it. But man, I personally did not care for this book. God, the last two pages are so good. Ugh, the end of this book is so good. I, I just remember waiting for the next book. But the problem is, I didn't actually like the next two books that much. <laughs> I feel like I actually liked the next book more. <laughs> yeah, it's the one about Will and the subtle knife. Yeah, I liked Will more than Lyra. I liked, and I liked the knife. <laughs> I liked Will. I wasn't sure about the book. I didn't like the Amber Spyglass, so I actually want to go back and reread it now as an adult. 
much like this podcast. Um, just because people, I know a lot of people where that's their favorite of the trilogy. So I feel like now that I can interpret a lot more of the political and religious undertones and controversy and battling forces involved in the books, I feel like it might be a much more interesting read. Also, now that like, I went through college as a literature major and read like Paradise Lost and a lot of the influential texts on this, it might be helpful. Well, just be warned that sometimes you read a book you didn't like much when you were younger, and then you read it again, and you like it even less. Could go the other way, though. Because <sighs> I liked this book, and now I like this book more. I will not be reading the other two books. <laughs> okay. That'll be, that'll be a personal project on my part. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> For now. Ugh. Keep this in mind when you start getting the A Wrinkle in Time sequels out around me. That's a whole other story, because I was like, but I kind of want to skip one of those, because it was one of those I didn't like. I'm just saying, if you start getting those out, Subtle Knife might be coming your way. But which ones didn't I like? I don't know. It was number two. I didn't like the second one. Okay. But the third one is so good! You didn't make me play that guessing game very long. The fourth one is also amazing. Mm, I don't know if I believe you. The fifth one isn't great. Uh, are there any other quotes that you want to share? No, I'm done. I'm okay. done. I've closed the book. <laughs> any other character feelings you have? My feelings are I love Lyra. I had zero strong feelings on pretty much every character in this book because, like I said, the writing was such a blockade for me to feel like I got to know any of them as well as to um, to acquire strong feelings. <laughs> There's another important question to answer. A character question of oh, sorts. No. Oh no, I knew this was coming. <laughs> <laughs> what Damon would you have, Emily? Ugh. I mean, I guess the easy answer is like a goldfinch, a wild one. Because as you well know from all the times you've been around or and or mocked me myself when other people did, my family is a weird bird family. <laughs> uh, but I like goldfinch. They're like bright and kind of obnoxious and like they don't care. Like, when all the other birds fly away because they're scared of, like, something that happened at the bird feeder, the goldfinches are all like, I did what now? <laughs> uh, they get, like, inside things, which I think is funny. They don't, like, sit on the feeders and stuff like a normal proper bird. They, like, wiggle their way in and, like, hang upside down and stuff, which, as you know me in real life, no, I am very prone to, like, yeah. not sitting on normal things and climbing up in weird spaces and <laughs> hanging from things in ways I shouldn't. <laughs> So I like that. I like birds that climb. I think it's kind of funny. <laughs> you have wings! Yeah. And again, they're like a bright, obnoxious color. Yeah. Which... Much like you. Very on point. <laughs> yeah. You are all missing out on Emily's super amazing dress right now. Picture the 90s in dress form, and you will not even come close. It's, <laughs> it's very good. This brilliant chartreuse and purple and blue and green monstrosity. <laughs> it's very good. Oh, it's wonderful. It was a good find at the Value Village. Oh. <laughs> Shout out. <laughs> uh, Value Village, sponsor us. Yeah. That would be, I mean, my easy answer. I guess I could do some, like, real soul searching if I cared about, like, what animals say about people or whatever. I think but that's a pretty good call, Also, though. again, I'm really obsessed with the fact that I'm afraid that Damon's might smell. <laughs> So, like, a tiny bird that, like, stays pretty clean and, like, even if it did get stinky, it's, like, you're small. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna throw you in a bath. Mm -hmm. I don't think birds smell as much as, like, you let a ferret go too long or something. Like, it can get a little... Ferrets do smell. Or, like, even dogs and stuff. You gotta stay oh, on top of smell. them. Dogs, you gotta yeah. give them baths. Like, I wanna do that to, like, my outside gender swap <laughs> soul. I mean, they're sentient. They can keep themselves clean. 
Okay. They can, but will they, Kelly? <laughs> See, I would like to think I would be an island fox because island foxes are the best. They're like a gray fox, but smaller and live on an island. I'm glad you gave me that description because I just pictured a fox in a Hawaiian shirt, like drinking a cocktail. That's also correct. Like, that's partly why I like the island fox is that image. Um, They live down the Channel Islands. They're like a gray fox, but they're smaller and cuter. Um, But realistically, I would probably end up with a big floofy cat, like a very tawny, floofy cat that needs to be brushed constantly, (laughs) just constantly shedding everywhere. Um, My roommates refer to me as a feral cat. I kind of just wander in the room, and then when I'm bored, I leave. (laughs) No one has really ever pointed out my distinction or similarities with any animal. I like to steal objects and hide them in various places. Which also, I think the bird thing is on that alignment for you as well. I'm very stubborn, and uh, I, I think I kind of just roll solo a lot, doing my own weird thing in the corner. So I feel like a large form of cat. Yeah, I like music a lot, even though goldfinches are not songbirds. So that's not really a move, but... Anything else about this book? That's all. I'm done. <laughs> so, ratings. How would you rate this book? I would give it a four. I mean, as generous as I can, knowing that I did not really get much or any really enjoyment out of it for me personally, but being like, I know a lot of people do love this, and like, a lot of my problems were either, I mean, not nitpicky, specific things that weren't like, so problematic, or just me being like, I personally did not care for this. Four. I think I would rate this a seven and a half. Yeah, I feel like it's a solid book. I mean, there's definitely some things I would do a little bit differently, but overall, I think it's an enjoyable ride, especially if this is sort of your genre of book. Um, I would recommend this probably to, like, middle school students. Like, I feel like I hit this at a really good age. I think if you're too young, the sort of level of political elements and just different competing forces can be a little bit complicated to get through which might make it hard because they do spend a lot of time talking about the magisterium and the different sort of forces around. And I think it's a, it's a bit of a dense book for like super young, but I feel like like middle school, this could be a really fun adventure, especially if you have anyone that's in a Lord of the Rings. I feel like this is definitely kind of in alignment with that book um, in terms of just style. So yeah, I think seven and a half is my, my go-to on this one. Yeah. And I would recommend it to people who, like books that I don't like. (laughs) Lovers of Tony Kushner plays who are looking to break into young adults and middle-aged books. I feel like we could put together a weird app where you mark like which of the books we've read that you like and it will generate based on that like alternate suggestions. Just based on what you and I hate. (laughs) Thank you everyone for joining us once again. I hope you will come back and join us when we will be reading Walk Two Moons. If you want to get in touch with us and tell us what your Damon is, I care, even if Emily doesn't. <laughs> it's not that I don't care. I don't like the concept of Damon's, and I'm worried about smells. <laughs> you can reach us at, through our email at throwbackbookstack at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter, at throwbackbspod, so feel free to drop us a line. Let us know what you think. If you have other book recommendations, I always love to hear them. And I love to hear them secondhand. (laughs) That's true. I do pass them all along to Emily, uh, and she finds great joy in them. Uh, If you like our podcast and want to make our day and make us feel joy, review us on iTunes. Uh, We would really appreciate beautiful five-star ratings shooting in our general direction. It gives us joy when so few things in this world do. Uh, Our music this week is Heartbreaker uh, by Jazar at betterwithmusic.com. Other than that, um, I hope you all have a fabulous week full of adorable fuzzy animals. Bye. 
Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Throwback Book Stack. If you haven't listened before, ah, fuck this. Okay. Um, <laughs> starting so good. That's a good intro. Let's use that now. 